here we go now. And we're at an interesting point in the book of Genesis because we're at a point now where if you're Jacob, you're thinking that I think I'm pretty much done. And a refrain from Jacob has been Jacob, who is Israel, right? Same name, Jacob, Israel, Israel, Jacob. Jacob has been saying, just let me die. It's time for me to die. What, what else is left for me except to die? A weird refrain, yet has been his refrain. But interestingly, it seems as though, for him anyway, life begins at 130. Because just when you think that perhaps you've disqualified yourself from God's useful hand, allowing you to be his vessel for some very special purposes... Oh my goodness, opens up yet another chapter where Jacob is finally able to gain the honor that he has always wanted, but has always eluded him, and also to do things in complete alignment with God's will. And this is what we'll, we'll recognize in just a moment. Uh, and for a lot of us, you've probably maybe messed with the idea or allowed Satan to whisper the idea into you that either because of where you are in life or because of some things that you've done that perhaps you've disqualified yourself from still being on a mission from God. I know for me early on in my discipleship, I was quickly within a year or so of, of being a disciple of Christ Quickly, a, a divorcee, and what kind of what kind of testimony did I have for my friends? I'm divorced. Like, what is the greatest shame that you can have as you're trying to talk to people about the power of God, and, and yet I've failed in like the worst of all ways? And oh my goodness, this is my life. And but come with me and, and learn about Jesus. And I remember just thinking, like, oh, what what is it that I could ever ever possibly do? And, you know, that was now 20 years ago plus. And uh, amazingly, it was just a year or so after that, that God put my pieces of my life together uh, of no doing of my own, uh, put the pieces of my life together and then laid out with clarity what it looked like to get back on the mission and follow him again. And to, to recognize that my life does not have to then just drift into greater and greater obscurity amongst the heavenly realms. But that there's always, always an opportunity and always the will of God for us to be on a mission from God. So, in one of the many astounding Movies from the 1980s. We draw our inspiration this morning with the title, Still on a Mission from God. As Jake and Elwood Blues, life had fallen to ruin. A amazing morality tale that we have there. Insightful work that it was. And there they were at the end of their tether. But they looked at one another saying, may our lady of blessed acceleration not fail us now. 
with the journey that was ahead of them as they tried to put the band back together and put the pieces of their empty life back together where they had meaning again. And just as they were ready to finally go all in for Jesus, well, at least for God of their own thoughts, they looked at each one another and affirmed, we're on a mission from God. And then Elwood said, we're 106 miles from Chicago. We've got a full tank of gas, a half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark out and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. But think about Jacob's life at this point right now. He began by struggling in the womb with his brother. Genesis 25. Later in Genesis 25, we recognize that he was raised by two of the most dysfunctional parents that the Bible can describe. In the depth and breadth of the favoritism that really did skew their understanding of all things. And then, having never been affirmed by his father all his life, Jacob then steals his father's blessing through deception as his father is an old man and dim of eyes. And he did it because of the hatred of his brother Esau. He then goes, spends many years in exile. And in exile, meets Rachel, the love of his life. But is fooled by her dad, Laban, who repeatedly cheats him out of his wages for year upon year. Plans to marry one wife and ends up with four and the outcome of all of that is just continual competition and strife and turmoil in his family now that he begins to lead. Finally, he actually packs up and flees from his oppressive uncle and eventually has to make some sort of a non-aggression pact with him just to keep further conflict from arising. And through all of this, deceit is his primary weapon of getting by in life. Finally on his own, finally think he's going to have peace. The very first thing that happens is that his daughter Dinah is violated at Shechem. In a, a response to that, his own sons then slaughter all of the Shechemites. He then lives in fear of reprisal from that point on. Right afterwards, the wife of his, his great love of his life dies at an early age, Rachel. And then the reminder of her, his favorite son, Joseph, he thinks is killed, but in fact is sold into slavery by his other sons and ends up not only in enslavement, but also in unjust imprisonment. And now, as we pick up with Jacob, he is on the verge of absolute termination because of a famine that has gripped the land and there is nothing in sight to be able to bring him any sort of sustenance, any, any sort of ability to live. Like this is, this is his life. And all of this turmoil, 
Really, so much of it is his own making. And this is his life. And in this man, this is the man that all Israel looks to in the scripture. Again, as I've said this before, this is their origin story. It's like, let's see where we came from. And this is what they find. Wow. How God chooses us, not because of anything that we've got going on. But then at this very end of his life, could it be that he, even he, could be on a mission from God again? And so we pick it up in, uh, in chapter 46, where it says, So Israel set out with all that was his. Why is that? Because right beforehand he had said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. His son Joseph has been separated from him for such a long period of time. Joseph torn from his father. Joseph forsaken by his family. Joseph longing to see his father is a, a, a shadow of the redemption that God will show us in Jesus. But Joseph is that redeemer that God raises up for just such a time as this to go down into Egypt, to be separated from his father, to to be away from all family, to be subjected to a terrible imprisonment, shackles about his neck, to, to go through all of that only to rise on up and prove to be the very deliverance that would save God's people. You know, for us as we kind of even reflect on Joseph as admirable a character he is, my goodness, we've got Jesus. And as God viewed Jacob and Israel and and chose to use them as his special possession, his special vehicle by which this bundle of blessing would spread to all nations, that they would be the, the keepers of this precious blessing, and yet that blessing would ultimately come to us. But the ultimate blessing that comes to us is not by some small act of redemption really lived out by a Joseph who is unwittingly part of the separation, unwittingly part of the sacrifice, part of the suffering that he goes on. He he plays that part, but he doesn't choose to. It's just brought upon him. But for us, when we think of our own origin story, it was brought to us by a Redeemer, by Jesus, who was also so painfully separated from his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did all of that because he chose to. He did all of that not because it was kind of in in some way orchestrated into his life, He did all of that by surveying the landscape, seeing the condition and the bankruptcy of my soul and your soul. And he did all of that because he looked at the dire need in all of us and loved us, loved us to the fullest and did the only thing that would truly be able to bring about real, real redemption. And that was to offer himself up in our place. You think about the pain of a, of a father and son separation that, that we'll see reunited here. Uh, I mean, if any of you have gone through the pain of a father-son separation, you, you know, wow, what it is that God is trying to show us in Jesus. 
and, and what it is that we're meant to appreciate. Even as we see Joseph and Jacob experience this. Remember when Zach, our, our oldest, went off to college and while it was kind of fun and exciting that he was off to a new adventure, you know, as we got in the car and as his dorm room closed and, and we drove off, oh, you know, the, the pain, the pain of that. Uh, it, Chase, I, I remember just a little while back, you know, it, it hits you in different ways, but we have this little tradition that, you know, as he goes, you know, heads off, we go to the gas station together um, because we're going to fill up his tank. And he happens to drive a Suburban. Thank you very little. And, and, but I remember this one time, just as I realized, because um, you, know, you do the calculation in your head, when's the next time I see my son? And I had just the best, sweetest time with him. You know, and there, and there, there he was driving up. I remember just thinking, I couldn't even drive for the longest time, but just crying. You know, thinking, oh, the separation from, from your son. And, and, and I think we know that. We know that there's nothing like that as parents. And, and, um, and God wants us to, to at least understand in some small, tiny way how much he loves us, that he goes through that. That which is going to finally come to an end right here, because Jacob is running back to finally be reunited with his son. So he sets out. I've only read three words. So Israel set out <laughs> with all that was his. And when he reached Beersheba... He offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. You know, it's interesting. He, he gets to the very southern edge of Israel. It's like he's traveling down. All right. All right. I, I got to go. I got to go see Joseph. I got to go see Joseph. But then he realizes, whoa, I'm not meant to leave the promised land. And it's almost as if he's ready to go see Joseph. And, and just as he's coming off of the southern edge, it's like he hangs on. Beersheba is the southern tip of, of Israel. Hanging on. And says, wait a minute, let me just make sure. Let's offer these sacrifices to God. This is a beautiful moment for Jacob. Jacob is a man who's used to living by his own wits. Jacob is a man probably that would would benefit uh, quite quite a bit from from reading Proverbs chapter 3, 5 and 6. Where there the Bible says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Jacob was a man who instead leaned on his own understanding. Rather than trusting in God, he trusted in his own scheming. And it was evidenced by deceit again and again. Now, he's about to go into Egypt, but before he does... He's going to come before the Lord in the land that God has designated and offer sacrifices to God, the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob. Uh, This double emphasis happens quite a bit in scripture. Martha, Martha, Abraham, Abraham, just a little while ago in chapter 22, as Abraham was about to sacrifice even Isaac. If you don't know why it is that you would say someone's name twice and what that means, then you're probably not a parent. (laughs) Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. 
I will go down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. You know, before, before I move on from that passage, my first point is we're on a mission from God. Jacob has been given at this age of his life, 130 years old, at this point of, of having trounced the will of God in so many different ways, of having grabbed hold of the means by which he wants to get things done through his own conniving. And it's at this point in time, after all that he's done, that God says this precious thing to him. Wow. And, and yet, when I think about all the ways that I've compromised on God, all the ways that I desired a claim from the world rather than from the Lord, when I've courted all that the world has to offer, ooh, it, it, instead of Jesus. And yet, this is what God still has to say to me, to every one of us. And if you want to be on this mission from God, then you've got to, first of all, like Jacob, believe that he is going to use you. Even you. And by the way, the more that you think, oh, but all right, I'll buy into it. But boy, oh boy, have I completely disqualified myself from being used by God. Congratulations. You meet the first qualification. The minute that you think, well, of course he's going to use me. I got it going on. Who better than I to be able to do the mission of God? Well, you need to sit on the sideline for a while. Get some real refining from the fist of God in your life for a bit. And then maybe you'll recognize that maybe even you too could be on a mission from God. But if, if you want to be able to be able to share in communion with all others that are on this mission, um, a mission from God... Well, then appreciate the bankruptcy of your ability, but yet marvel that nonetheless, you're the one that he wants. Amen. Also, that means then, like Jacob, that you have to now be ready to leave everything familiar, secure, and comfortable. Because this is no mission to put a band back together. This is no mission for self-grandization this is a mission from God from God himself the creator of the universe when he shares this it ought to give you pause because when he shares it with Jacob what's the first thing he says don't be afraid why because if you just contemplate for a half a moment that this is a mission of the God of the creator of the universe and you're being called to it, well, you ought to be afraid. You ought to be very afraid. Like, wow, what am I being called to? This is transcendent. You know what? I've done such a good job of filling my life with smallness of the here and now that I don't want to calm my soul and contemplate the transcendent amazement of God himself and that he is real and that he does actually choose to be in my life. And he doesn't choose to be in your life just to be some sort of a 
I don't know, a, a nice uncle of some sort. He chooses to be in your life because you're going to be used by him for the mission. But this mission from God is not one where you get to have your cake and eat it too. It's not one where you get to keep on keeping on and somehow try to make yourself Lord and Jesus Lord at the same time. Our generation offers countless corruptions for that ability. But God does not. But when you realize this is a mission from God, well then, whatever it is, however comfortable, however secure, however familiar, it should be easy to look at it and see the, the mere smallness of that idea versus the greatness that God is calling you to. And then, as we see from Jacob and as we see from Jesus calling us, if you're going to be on a mission from God, not only do you have to recognize that He's the one calling you for that mission, that you need to give up anything for that mission, but thirdly, as, as we see from Jacob, you need to obey everything. Go down to Egypt. Go down to Egypt. Obey everything. But also when you're on a mission from God, and if those are three subpoints to we're on a mission from God, I've got three sub 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 points to, to that idea. Because look at then what God says to you when you then go all in and you step over that threshold from the mundane to the holy. From smallness to greatness. Of a life that you're meant to live. When you step over that threshold, then this is also what God then says to you. Number one, I will make you great. What you're about to do, even, even though you yourself are not great, I will make you great. And the work that you accomplish will be great. You now have significance. You now have honor. You who only collected a life work of shame have all of that cast away and you are in the service of God so I will make you a great nation he says and then number one I will I will I will make you great and number two as you're on this mission I am with you every step of the way it's scary it's going to be more than scary by the way it's going to be treacherous and it's going to be an adventure. But you're going to love it. If you realize that I'm with you every step of the way. I love what Jesus says to the rich young ruler. Who's like, all right, I'm all in. Let's go. Mark 10. Let's do this thing. And then, and then Jesus says to him, no, no, no. Unless you give up everything, including your wealth, you're, you're not on this. And he's like, uh, never mind. But then all the disciples are like, but Jesus, we did that. Our fishing boats, I don't even know where they are. The nets, who knew? Tax collector's booth, somebody else is got, like that's that's like in our rearview mirror. Jesus, what what about us? And he says, you know, any of you who have given up any of those things, fields or homes or family, any of that, you're going to get a hundred times as much, even in this current life. But then he says one other thing. Oh, and you know what you're going to get with that? Wait for it. Wait for it. 
persecution. All right, so Jesus gives you not only a hundred times as much, not only a path of adventure and a life of significance, but treacherous persecution along the way. And you do that. You do that. This is where I'm coming from. You know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to hire Morgan Freeman to narrate your life. That's where I was going. It was worth it, don't you think? But not only will God be with you every step of the way, but the end of the journey, it will all be worth it. Amen. Look at what he says here. You know what? Not only are you going to go down into Egypt where you're going to be enslaved, by the way, but I'm going to bring you back. And, not only, and, then, and then this intimate detail. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Wow. That's dying well. That's living well. That's dying well and living well for a man who has not lived well. I'm sure Jacob must be thinking, who, who am I at this stage of life after all that I've done? Who am I to have this transcendent honor? Attend to me. Who am I that that could be the case? Please understand this. No matter how old you are, no matter how much you feel as though you've disqualified yourself, God still looks at you as his precious son or daughter, ready to say, get in the game, get in the game. You know, it's so inspiring when I think about the last few years of all the folks that, that have been baptized over the age of 60. Right, let, me, let me just even, there's probably some right here even now. If, if you were baptized into Christ after the age of 60, can, can you go ahead and stand on up? You all that just stood, you're a commando force for God. And, and what it is that, that you get to do now is magnificent. Praise God. And then probably if I could ask everybody else, you'd all have to stand. If you thought, and, and by the way, in your walk in Christ, if you feel like you've disqualified yourself well beyond the point of return of ever being in any way useful enough to be used by God... You know, if you could stand, well, that would be the rest of you. And by the way, the exact same thing applies. The exact same thing applies that, that you, yes, you, we all are on a mission from God. My second point is we're getting the band back together. Because in verse nine, it says, then Jacob left Beersheba. And Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them their livestock, their possessions they had acquired in Canaan. Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons, his grandsons, his daughters, his granddaughters, all his offspring. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. Jacob is an descendant who went into Egypt. And then we begin with Reuben, the firstborn, and then Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun and Gad and Asher. All of these, as well as those that, that, that were behind with, with Rachel, also the sons of Benjamin that would soon be born, the sons of Dan, all of them, verse 26, all those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, numbered 66 persons. 
With the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family, which went to Egypt, were 70 in all. But then you say, well, 66 plus Joseph plus Manasseh plus Ephraim, his two sons, that's just 69. Like, how do you get to, to 70 if it's 66 that, that, are, that are listed as going down in the company and there? And, well, maybe it's because what did God say to him? I will go down with you. Seventy persons in all go down into his... And, and here we see this beautiful scene. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. By the way, Judah is the mastermind who orchestrated the, the uh, enslaving sell-off of Joseph. He was the one who, who worked out how Joseph was going to make his way into Israel through nothing less than sin. And now Judah has the honor of actually setting up the real return of everyone back to Joseph. When they arrived at the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, look at this beautiful scene. He threw his arms around his father and wept a long time. We're getting the band back together. Now, Israel then says to Joseph, now, even though I've said it like five times already, now I'm ready to die. Since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. So it took 150 years in getting this band together to go from one that is Abraham in chapter 12 all the way to 70. 150 years from 1 to 70. But then they go into Egypt. And in Egypt, as they continue to be God's holy people, in 400 years, they go from 70 to 200 million. Why? Because they're on a mission from God. And they're doing it together. And as this band has been brought together, the band that God wants to bring together is going to outnumber the sands of the seashore. God wants this special possession to be His chosen instrument, to be those that would expand His love to, to all that, that He can send it to. And as we really do practice the mission that Jesus has given us, go, go to all nations, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything. And surely I am with you always. Sounds almost like what God is saying to Jacob here. Amazingly similar. But, but as he says that to us, I think we also have to recognize that, you know, at first, 1 to 70 in 150 years, that's kind of slow. And I kind of been thinking, oh, sand of the seashore and 70 of us. In discipleship, in the beginning, it is actually rather slow. And that as you, you know, have each person deciding to really practice discipleship, not some jive form of, oh, you know, accept Jesus into your heart, any sort of profession of faith that doesn't actually include repentance. Yeah, we'll count that as well. I'm not talking about compromises of Christianity. I'm talking about Jesus is Lord Christianity, where discipleship 
really does have the expectation of lordship of Jesus. When that happens, that is slow. That is slow at first. Again, the first 150 years here, 1 to 70. The next 400 years, 70 to 2 million. But when you really do practice discipleship, it ought to be the case that while it is slower in the beginning, and even as we've gone from one Isuzu trooper 25 years ago to now just 25 years later, 171 Isuzu troopers, that's the amount of car space we would need to, to all get in the car that originally drove the, the, the seed of faith that was, that was here to, to get our fellowship going. So we've gone from 1 to 171 Isuzu Troopers in 25 years. And yes, that's pretty encouraging. But guess what? If we're practicing true discipleship from 70 to 2 million, actually should really be the expectation and should really be an acceleration if discipleship is really practiced in Christ. But if there's going to be acceleration, then every one of these generations that goes down with Jacob has to maintain trueness to that very call that God had given to Jacob. There can be no compromise from generation to generation. And even as Jacob was getting ready to kind of, in a sense, cash it in, even the older generations cannot, in some sense, say, well, I think we've done what we've needed to do. No, if true discipleship is to work, then, and if, then we should actually see an acceleration of God's effectiveness through us. But let me be real. You know, for the last six years, quite encouraging, our church has on average baptized about 100 people every year. Matter of fact, it's been over 600 people in the last 600 years. There's a lot to edit. You know, there's been about 600 baptisms in the last six years. It's quite encouraging, wouldn't you say? Sure. Anyway, however, however, it's not as though six years ago it was 50 towards that average and then 70, then 80, then 100, then 100. Then 100. No, it's, it's been about 100 every year. You know what that tells me is that the same people are doing the same work of Christ. Even though we've gone from 500, 600, 700, 800 people, that sadly, too many of the same people are doing the work. And that if we're to really be on the mission, we're all on that mission. We're all in the band. We all have a part to play. This is super vital. And if you can kind of take a look at the fact that God has chosen even you, but yet, you're not really playing much of a part. Well, today's the day. Today's the day to reclaim what God has always wanted for you. That is, you're not too late like Jacob. You're not too qualified like Jacob. You're exactly who you're meant to be. To no longer let your life be a life of just mon mundane, profane, normal, everyday, worldly living. Who wants that at the end of the day? As a matter of fact, in a minute, we're going to see Jacob come face to face with Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth. And then Jacob, a sheep herder who has a checkered past. And as he comes before him, who blesses whom? 
Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Amen. Hebrews 7, 7 says the greater will bless the lesser. Who would you rather be now that you have a perspective of time? Would you rather have the blessings of Jacob? Or would you rather have the blessings of Pharaoh? I bet you'd rather have the blessings of Jacob knowing where he is right now and where Pharaoh is right now. So why are you going after the blessings of Pharaoh? Why is your energy going in that direction? And why not embracing as Jacob did? Even at the 11th hour, why not embracing the blessings of God rather than the blessings of the world? Please, everybody here, as we go after generational lift, don't let this go by. Be astounded that these 70 become 2 million. Be astounded that we're in the same lineage of blessing. The exact same lineage of blessing that was protected through them to be given to you. Why? So that you could then be a blessing to all others. To go and bless the nations. Baptizing them and teaching them to be a blessing as well. Your life has rather astounding significance. You know your reason for being. So few people even understand their purpose in life. I've had this conversation over the last few weeks with so many people. When I ask, what is the purpose that gives meaning to your work and your family and your life? And, you know, I, I've said this before to you because I've had this conversation. Often they say, well, I guess it's my family. No, no. What is the purpose that gives meaning to your family? Well, I, I guess it's my work. No, what is the purpose? that You know that. You have that overarching purpose that is no less grand than from the creator of the universe himself. And you now are in that lineage of significance. Please, please realize who you are in Christ. You are on no less than a mission from God. You're in the band. Play the part. And then finally, the last point is, what we're asking you to do here is a holy thing. Amen. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I'm in verse 31 of chapter 46. I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and my father's household have come to me. The men are shepherds, they tend livestock, and they have brought among their flocks and herds everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, What's your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Why is that important? Because God is taking Israel out of Canaan for a reason. They were beginning to assimilate, to fraternize with the unholiness that was all around them. And what is it that God wants? He wants a special, precious, holy, consecrated, astounding people that are not half in, half out, but beautifully all in for Him. And by being shepherds and going to Israel, God in His brilliance has worked it out that I get to take you out of Canaan, where they're kind of all right with you. As a matter of fact, you're kind of attractive to them. That's dangerous. Let's get you out of there. And I'm going to put you in Egypt, in the belly of the superpower. But because you are absolutely repulsive to the Egyptians, it'll be like an incubator for you. 
where for the next 400 years, I could try to discipline the Canaanites up here. But for those 400 years, I don't have to worry about the Egyptians kind of saying, hey, did you, did you check out that, that, that Jewish girl over there? They will never say that because you are repulsive in their eyes. And they're going to give you a wide berth and let you develop into the greatness that you're meant to be so that when I take you out of that incubator as the fullness of the blessing and deploy you back into the promised land of Canaan, you're going to be able to get there and wipe out the unholiness of the land and be who I've always wanted you to be. If we want to be in the band, if we want to be effective for God, know that what God is asking you to do is a holy thing. He wants you to come out and be separate. Not to be weird. Not to say, oh, I'm, I'm not going to kind of in any way interact with those. No, you're meant to be a blessing to everyone. But you're not meant to be corrupted by anyone. Right. Second Corinthians. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, look at God's heart here for you. I will live with them and I will walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. Those small compromises are not worth it. Amen. The honor, the glory, the significance that is yours in Jesus is no comparison. Yeah. What you have in Christ, if anyone could be able to step back with clarity of thought and be able to recognize, is the most wonderful thing that anyone could ever come to know. And Jesus has worked out the events of your life to disrupt you significantly to get you to pay attention. Pay attention and realize what it is that I'm giving your way. This is, this is the ultimate. This is the meaning of life. This is your reason for being. This is my grand plan. This is what began in Genesis 1 and what will be extended all the way through to the end of time. And you're part of it. There's nothing bigger than that. And this is yours. You're on a mission from God. It may be 106 miles from Chicago. You may have a full tank of gas and a half a pack of cigarettes that you'll throw away. <laughs> it's dark out and you're wearing sunglasses, so hit it. But more importantly, there are 107 million souls in Hampton Roads. We have 800 disciples. We have an inspired Bible and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hampton Roads Church, hit it.